Animal Adventures 4 Jimmy, the Black Bear Cub by Ernest Harold Baines Jimmy arrives in New Hampshire. I never shall forget Jimmy's arrival. It was late afternoon on a peaceful summer day, and we were not expecting him. We were living in the Haven Cottage, seven miles north of Newport, New Hampshire, and we were all seated on the piazza. "'looking out over a sunlit daisy field "'and listening to the song of Hermit Thrush. "'I happened to glance down the road, "'and far away I could see a cloud of dust. "'It heralded the coming of the stage, "'which brought our mail and express packages. "'Even at that distance I could hear strange sounds, "'which did not harmonize with the songs of the Hermit Thrush. "'Finally the stage drove up, and the driver dumped a wooden box into the middle of the lawn. From the inside of that box was coming a perfectly awful noise. There was a continuous and frantic scratching at the woodwork, and a vocal sound which seemed to growl louder every moment. "'Wow! Wow! Wow!' yelled the angry voice. "'No! No! No!' it wailed. I said to the stage driver, "'What in the world have you got in that box?' But the stage driver had been sitting alongside that noise for seven miles and was in no humor for talk. So he climbed to his seat, whipped at his lathering horses, and left me to find out for myself what was in the box. I took a hammer and a chisel and pried off a corner of it, and out of the hole I had made there was thrust a little black furry face with a tawny muzzle, round furry ears, a pair of black beady eyes, and the most impudent expression I have ever seen on the face of an animal. I recognized my guest at once as a black bear cub. He stepped out onto the lawn and deliberately looked round, as if in search of the man who was responsible for his discomfort. Then his anger gave way to sobs and wails of grief. There was a sentimental lady calling on us at the time, and at a glance she saw that the little stranger needed comforting. She ran down the steps, snapped up the bear cub into her arms, and murmured, Oh, the poor little dear! Now the poor little dear had been in that box for several days, and he was looking for something more substantial than love murmurings, and his natural short temper was not quite as long as usual. With a savage little growl, he bit the sentimental lady on the arm, and with a raking stroke of his sturdy hind legs, he tore a long rent into the lady's dress. She promptly dropped him and rushed back to her place on the piazza. In the meantime, our housekeeper Lucy had looked upon the scene. No kinder person lived than she. But her kindness to animals was based on knowledge and common sense. She knew that no matter what the anatomist might tell you, the way to the heart of a hungry little bear was right down through his tummy, that she lost no time in getting to his tummy. With the aid of a bowl of crackers and milk, she found his heart, badly bent but not quite broken. Haven Cottage, where Jimmy came to us, stands on the eastern border of the Blue Mountain Forest. The Great Game Preserve comprises about 40 square miles of beautiful wild country, surrounded by a high fence and stocked with buffalo, elk, white-tailed deer, and many other wild creatures, both native and introduced. Down the middle of it, roughly north and south, like a mighty backbone, stretched the spruce-clad 
Cradon Range, the Blue Mountain, which gave the place its name. In the hilly country round about the park, as the country folk call it, lie old farms with white green shuttered maple shaded houses, gray barns, gnarled apple trees, and scrub grown rock studded cattle pastures. Here and there may be found more prosperous homesteads with well kept lawns and flower beds and painted out buildings and herds of thoroughbred cattle. It was in this farming country and in the Blue Mountain Forest itself that the little bear passed his New Hampshire days. His life with us was one long series of humorous adventures, humorous for Jimmy, for us, our neighbors, according to the point of view, but it made no difference what he did. Lucy always defended him, with her tongue at least, and with the fire irons if necessary. If the paint were scratched on the front door, if all the strawberry jam in the pantry were eaten, if the coverlet of the bed were decorated with paw-painted bear tracks down in muddy water color, it was the tame deer that did these things. Or, if the deer could prove an alibi, it was the wolves, the foxes, the possums, or even the skunks. Any living thing on the face of the landscape except Jimmy Bear. He never did anything wrong, and whenever we succeeded in actually pinning it on him, she would rather remind us that we're all human, you know, or make us feel that somehow we were trying to take advantage of an infant who had no parents to stand up for him. Once when I caught him on the kitchen dresser, sitting among the fragments of some china he had pulled from a shelf above, I called the housekeeper and remarked sternly, Well, I suppose you'll admit it did, that he did this. Now Lucy had been in our family for a long time, and had served my father and mother before us, looking for me to the culprit bear, and then at me again. Her mind flashed back a score of years. Straightening to her full height and folding her arms, she said, Well, Harold, I don't think you should be so hard on him. Please remember you were a boy yourself once, and of course I remembered and did not press her for details. Jimmy deferred somewhat from the little girl who had a curl right in the middle of her forehead, for when he was fed he was very, very good, but when he was hungry he was horrid. When that comfortable feeling which followed a meal began to wear off, the cub would let us know it by muttering and grumbling, low and unobtrusive at first, like the warnings of a miniature volcano about to become active. Unless the growling fires of his hunger were quenched with milk or something equally good, the rumblings grew deeper and louder, and at last there came an uncontrollable outpouring of Ursuline profanity, which told us that the volcano was in full eruption. At such a time, it was quite useless to try to divert his attention. He was hungry and wanted his food, and no one could persuade him that he didn't, and if he were loose, he would probably make for the screen door of the kitchen and open it defiantly with the aid of a sharp claw, march straight to the sink, standing on his hind legs, he would stretch until he reached the edge with his forefeet, 
and with a single hoist he would reach his goal, where he was likely to find a pail of fresh drinking water, which might occupy his attention for a moment, though he would probably be grumbling all the time he was drinking, and then turning round would let himself down backward until his hind feet touched the floor. By this time, Lucy would be preparing a basin of bread and milk. Jimmy would see her and at once start to hurry things by dancing on his hind legs in front of her, clasping her about the knees, biting and tugging at her skirts. She was not in the least afraid of him, and sometimes in order to try his patience, or rather his impatience, a little more, she would hold the coveted basin just above his reaching, shrieking with rage. He would dance around her, wildly snatching at the food. Finally, one swift paw would make connection, and then the game began to go his way. His claw hung on the rim of the basin like so many iron hooks, and it were lifted any higher Jimmy went with it. Then Lucy would carry him out dinner. Then Lucy would carry him out dinner and all, and set the basin on the lawn, whereupon we were treated to a moving picture show with real meaning of expression, as hungry as a bear, lying flat on his tummy before the food, and with four arms wrapped round the basin, right and left, he would thrust his muzzle almost to the eyes into the bread and milk, which rapidly disappeared to the combination of sounds showing greed, satisfaction, and distrust. <clears throat> when he had licked the vessel so clean that it need not further washing, he seemed to feel much better, and the time had come for play. He would roll about on the lawn and turn somersaults and scrambled up the piazza post, seeming as much to his own delight as to the neighbor's children, who often gathered to see him. And here I might add that never before or since have we had so much attention from those children as we had when Jimmy was our guest. It seemed every time a hen gave a cackle, wide-eyed youngsters were always coming to inquire if they needed any maple sugar or fresh butter, whether we would like to sell our hay, or if we wanted some one to saw the wood. Of course, the inquirer need left the premises until Jimmy had been seen. Whether our needs were urgent or not at all, Jimmy evidently enjoyed his young visitors and seemed to make special efforts for their amusement. Some of the grown-ups were not quite so much amused. Among these were men who drove daily past our house. Horses are affected differently by the odor of a bear, but many of them dislike it intensely, and a few, at least, are thrown into paroxysms of fear. Usually a spirited horse would begin to manifest uneasiness when he came within a few hundred yards of our place, and the uneasiness accompanied by snorting, pricked ears, and sidelong glances increased until he drew close to the house when the tendency was to bolt. This tendency was greatly increased if the bear was actually in sight or giving vocal evidence of his presence. One morning a farmer neighbor Driving a nettlesome young horse was passing the house, and seeing the bear, drew up to have a better look at him. But the horse, 
which had been exhibiting great nervousness, now went wild with fear, and leaping into the air came down upon his side. With the num nimbleness of a cat, the man sprang clear, seized the horse by the head, and a moment later the animal was on his feet again, fortunately unhurt. The driver, a good sport, asked me to bring a cub close by, as he wished his horse to become used to the sight and smell of it. I turned round to look for Jimmy, but apparently he had not liked the behavior of the horse, and he had climbed to the top of the nearby tree, where he now sat calmly munching a cluster of green wild cranberries. It was fifteen minutes before he saw fit to come down to be introduced, and then it was with an air of conferring an honor upon the horse. Jimmy loved farms and never tired of exploring them. The odors of orchards and dairies seemed to tickle his nostrils pleasantly, and of course there was always a fair chance of finding something to tickle his palate as well. Then there was the fun of frightening things, hens, ducks, and sheep, and the greatest fun of all, chasing them afterwards. Sometimes even the owners of the farms were the victim of his pranks. One of our neighbors, who slept on the first floor, had a rare, almost extinct passion for fresh air. One day the cub climbed through his open window, and when that night the man got into the bed in the dark, he thought somebody had been setting a steel trap for him. It was only Jimmy, who resented being disturbed at that late hour, and who bit one great toe so badly that it had to be carried in a sling. Lucy seemed to think that it was her duty to give him a personal introduction to all the other animals around her. Usually this was not at all necessary from his standpoint, because Jimmy had no difficulty in becoming acquainted with anyone who cared about him. He simply walked right up and introduced himself. Possibly she thought there would be fewer misunderstandings if she were present, and this no doubt she was right. But if he didn't want to be introduced, not even her kindly office could persuade him to extend the friendly paw. Once, I remember, she wished to introduce him to a fine tricolored collie dog named Bruce. She sat on the lawn beside the dog and tried to call Jimmy to her side. The cub refused to come. He walked around in circles regarding Bruce with a suspicious eye and finally went away, leaving Lucy and the visitor to make the best of their own company. Lucy did not understand this behavior, but I had seen a previous meeting. A few days before, a young Scotch farmer, the owner of Bruce, drove up in a buggy. With the dog at his side, Bruce jumped out, and there was Jimmy standing on the lawn. The two eyed one another for a moment, and then Jimmy advanced, rising to his hind legs and putting out his arm. The smell of the bear was a new one to the collie and he retreated growling under the buggy. He seemed ashamed of his caution, but here was an odd new creature, a very dangerous one for all he knew, and Bruce was a canny dog. Had he known a little more about bear cubs, he would not have been the least afraid. If Jimmy had known a little more about dogs, he would have been more 
he would have been more cautious. Just then, Bruce's owner stepped out of the buggy. Now, a dog by himself is only one dog, but a dog backed by a real man whom he loves and trusts is three dogs, and three dogs are not to be daunted by one bear cub, no matter how dangerous he may look. As the Scotchman's foot touched the ground, it seemed to release a spring, which hurled Bruce from between the buggy wheels straight at the back and furry thing beside him. Jimmy turned several somersaults backward, and when he stepped ro stopped rolling, he was wrong side up with the collie astride of him. Brucey! The Scotchman's voice was low, but the tone of disapproval was perfectly understood, and the dog crestfallen trotted back to his side. Na, 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 ya mana hoot the wee cub, Brucey. He would not hurt you. Bruce didn't seem at all sure of this, but his god had spoken, and the bear cub was safe. He didn't know that dogs have gods and that it was Bruce's god that had owned his life. All that Jimmy knew was that he had been scared almost to death and that the thing which scared him was to be avoided in future, hence Lucy's failure to effect a formal introduction. But Jimmy's disapproval of Bruce did not necessarily extend other dogs, and he had some very intimate canine friends. One of these was a cur of low degree named Bingo, who lived at a farm half a mile away. Sometimes Jimmy went to call on him, but usually Bingo came to our house. Bingo was in no particular breed, or, as some one put it, he was of many unparticular breeds. Nevertheless, he was a very lovable dog. He was black and tan in color, and his eyes and tail seemed to vie with one another in appearing happy and friendly. All the small boys for miles around made a pal of Bingo. He was the dog they took with them when they went fishing or berry-picking or when they went to round up the cows. There was only one younger whom Bingo liked better than these, and that was Jimmy. The two seemed to have a complete understanding, and I have seldom seen two animals have such glorious times together. They ran side by side through the fields, playing tag round the barn, and when they were so winded that they didn't seem able to run another yard. They would lie on the lawn about a foot apart and just gaze at one another until they recovered their breath. Then, perhaps, they would wrestle, each animal raising on his hind legs in an effort to down his opponent. Usually, they would keep up the wrestling match until Jimmy was tired. Sometimes, Bingo seemed to be tired first, but if Jimmy had good hold on him, that didn't make any difference. They went straight on with the game. If, as occasionally happened, Bingo continued to be strenuous after Jimmy had had enough, their bear would try to escape by climbing a tree. In this, he was seldom successful, for although the dog could not climb, he could jump beautifully. Just as the cub seemed to be safe, Bingo would leap after him and seizing his short tail or a hind foot, bring him tumbling to the ground again. 
Jimmy wanted but little here below. In fact, he wanted nothing but his own way. And he usually had it because it made life easier for the rest of us. Not much easier, just easier. One thing he was very particular about was that the milk he drank for breakfast, it had to be this morning's milk. It was no use to offer him last night's milk, no matter how cool it had been kept or how sweet it smelt. Jimmy was a connoisseur of milk. He would detect the fraud at once and set up a whale, which we were glad to stop at almost any price. As soon as the new milk was set before him, he almost wallowed in it, and the whaling ceased automatically. After he had absorbed all the milk and crackers he wanted, he was ready to play. He would roll about on the lawn, biting his own feet, and then, for no apparent reason, he would dash straight up a tree. His method of climbing was interesting and different. He ascended a trunk by a series of leaps, digging his hind toes in below him, springing from them, throwing his sturdy fore arms upward and around the tree to get a fresh and loftier hold after every jump. He mounted with an agility one hardly would have accredited to him. Coming down was a much more serious business, at least in the early days. Later he became more skillful and could even slide, but at first he would come down very slowly and with almost unbelievable caution, like an elderly gentleman descending a precipice. Tail first he would come, stopping frequently to look down as though seeking a new foothold and sometimes grumbling a little, if to let us know that he realized the horrible danger he was in. But he always reached the ground in safety, and at once was ready for another adventure. Next to feeding, his greatest pleasure was bathing. So, soon after breakfast, he would bring out a large, we would bring out a large washtub filled with water, and into it he would go. Sometimes before getting in, he would walk round it on his hind legs, dipping in his forepaws as though to see if the temperature was all right. Or perhaps he would dance round it like a young Indian, scooping up the water with his little hands and dashing it over everything and everybody within reach. Then he would get into the tub and sit down on his haunches, or if the water was not too deep, he would roll round on his back and wash his face with the wet paws. After he had splashed as much as he cared to, he would suddenly jump out of his bath and with water squirting from his long coat at every lap, chase anyone who had happened to be near. If it were a woman, so much the better, because she was probably going to scream, and that always seemed to add to the fun. It was quite useless for the pursued to try to climb out of his reach. Climbing was Jimmy's long suit. The only safety was behind a closed door, or a door with a latch, a door which closed simply with a spring. He could open as well. First, he would pull it ajar, and then one of his forepaws, and then insert his muzzle. <clears throat> In the kitchen, there was a screen door, which closed with a spring in that way, and he knew how to open this door at once. 
Whether he had done the trick before or not, I know not. At that front hall, there was another screen door, and it so happened that while the kitchen door opened at the right, the front door opened at the left. Here was a chance to test the little bear's knowledge of doors. So, when I saw that he was very anxious to enter the house, I latched the kitchen door and let him go round to the front. At once it was evident that he had no experience with the doors which opened at the left, and for he devoted all his energies to the right-hand side, and for many minutes worked hard at the cracking close to the spring and hinges. After he had given it up as a bad job, I brought him back and opened the door just an inch or two. In a moment he inserted his nose, and afterwards he was able to open that door as easily as the other ones. As soon as Jimmy was considered big enough to go for a walk with me, he went. I took one black paw in my right hand, and for a short distance he walked along like a little man. But he soon got tired of the upright position, and I let him go on all fours. The world was very new and full of interest for him, and apparently he wanted to see it all that very day. He chewed the grass and sniffed the wild flowers, and made clumsy attempts to catch the butterflies which hovered over them. He entered all the deserted houses, climbed into the cupboards, looked carefully up the chimneys, and acted generally as if he were thinking of renting a place for the summer. Once he had a fearful adventure. In the yard of one of the houses was an old-fashioned, well-swept sweep, and Jimmy, after eyeing the tall, slanting pole, decided to climb it. It was stiff from disuse and never moved until he reached the very top, when, to his surprise and horror, it tipped over and brought him back to the ground with a bump. Luckily, the well itself had been boarded up. But young bears are very strong-minded, and he was much more scared than hurt. A few minutes later, he seemed to have forgotten all about it, and at any rate, he shinned up to the top of the next signpost he came to, very much to the amusement of passing Rustic, who remarked with a grin, I guess that bear wants to see how far he is from home. Along the country road we went, Jimmy galloped gaily, now in front, now behind, and making frequent excursions into the woods on either hand to satisfy his curiosity or to pick wild raspberries, of which he was very fond. When he came to a raspberry bush, he would first eat those which hung near the ground, and then, standing on his hind legs, he would pull the tall branches down to him with his forepaw. The amount of energy he displayed was remarkable. He never seemed to know what it was to be tired, even after the most violent excursions. After galloping perhaps a hundred yards to catch up, he would make a playful run at me, biting at my legs and giving me a vigorous hug and shaking with his forepaws, breaking away only to dash up a tree to a point perhaps fifty feet from the ground, without so much as a twig to aid him in his ascent. Here he would probably chew the green leaves for a moment, 
and then he would come sliding down, tail first, and at once break into a gallop to make up for the ground he had lost. He would march boldly along the tops of stone walls, walking slowly and cautiously on the wobbly rail fences, and rush up the trunk of trees when there was nothing more exciting at hand. Sometimes he would remain up a tree a long time, and I got far ahead of him on the road, or sometimes I would hide in the long grass and call him to see what he would do. Apparently he seldom followed by trail of scent as a dog would do, but relied on his ears and eyes, chiefly on the latter. At the sound of my voice he would stand upright on his hind legs, and I would see him peering in my direction, over the tops of the grass blades. If I called again, or if he caught sight of me, down he would drop, and taking the general direction, he would gallop towards me. Then, as soon as he was in doubt, up on his hind legs he would go and get his bearings again. And when at last he found me, he seemed satisfied, but showed not the least sign of affection, such as a fox or even a wolf would have shown, but simply ran along as before. Jimmy says goodbye. Toward the following spring, after long deliberation, we decided that Jimmy was going to get too large for private use. Good-natured as he was, he was growing very strong and quite too strenuous and demonstrative for the liking of some of the people he made his business to meet. If he saw a man coming up the road, that man was in for a wrestling match whether he was in training or not, and if his apparel happened to be quite unsuitable for work on the mat, it made not the slightest difference to the black imp who challenged him. A very nice young man walked all the way from Lebanon one day to try to sell us a copy of The Heaven Through Nature. Jimmy happened to meet him a quarter of a mile down the road, and by that time, I was able to respond to his very vigorous call for help. He looked as if he had been trying to hurry through a series of barbed wire entanglements. We simply had to ask him to lunch, and Lucy spent most of the afternoon mending his trousers. As he was leaving, her eyes twinkled, and she called to him, When you get out a new edition of your book, don't forget to have a chapter on bears. Even Lucy was no longer sure that she could hold her own against Jimmy. One day he caught her away from the house, and his playful bearish way tore her skirt and apron, and at last, to her great mortification, she was obliged to call for help. But the climax was reached one evening when Mrs. B Baines was coming home from a walk. Jimmy seized her, and in spite of all she could do to prevent him, tripped her on and threw her on the snow. Of course, it was in fun from his point of view, but to hers it was becoming serious. She called to me. I ran as fast as I could, but by the time I got there, he had taken the knot of her hair in his mouth, pushed her head into the soft snowbank. He was getting too funny to laugh at and I determined to find a new home for him. That was not entirely easy. When he was very little, everybody wanted him, 
But as he had grown larger and stronger, the offers which were made for him grew fewer and fewer. One friend, when asked if he didn't want a nice young bear about Jimmy's size, answered, No thanks. What have I done to you? But at last I learned that the New York Zoologist Society wanted a Canadian black bear, and the director kindly wrote to me, offering to buy him. I could not accept the offer, as I have always made it a point never to sell an animal, which has been a member of my household. But I promptly presented him, and I confess it with a mingled feeling. Next morning we went for our last walk together, and when I mark his height as he stood on his hind legs and felt the strength of his arms and the grip of his teeth when he closed with me for a wrestling bout, I knew that we had not made our decision too soon. But that afternoon, when we walked out onto the piazza, stood up at once uh, of the posts, and with a strangely sad expression on his face, looked away across those blue hills and valleys, which he had never to see again, there came a choky feeling in our throats. And when the little later... He picked up a much-longed rag doll, which Mrs. Baines had made for him, sat down with it on his lap, and licked its face all over for the last time, and then carried it off to bed with him. We couldn't help feeling very sorry that the little bear grew up into a big one. Of course, our intelligence told us that we had no idea that, that he had no idea that he was going away and his standing at the piazza post particular afternoon was merely an interesting coincidence, and that the sadness of his expression was probably in our own imagination. Nevertheless, these things all tended to emphasize the fact that he was about to leave us, and we were genuinely sad to think that he was go we were going to lose him. Early next morning, a sledge drawn by two big black oxen stopped at our door. They were headed towards Lebanon, our nearest railway station, eight miles away. After we had all let Jimmy give us a parting hug, I led him to a crate which had been made for him. A few moments later, the crate, with the bear inside it, was lifting onto the sledge. Gee, cried the driver. The great black oxen swung to the right, breaking out the runners and sending glittering ice splattering in all directions. Whoosh! The powerful brutes lunged forward into the yoke, and the sledge moved northward over the rough and frozen road. Lucy, her apron held to her face, stood crying as if her heart would break. Two months later, I went to New York, and naturally the first person I called on was Jimmy. I wanted to see if he remembered me, to know whether he could distinguish me from the thousands of other people who went past those bear dens every day. I told the director, and he consented to go with me and help me make a test of it. From a distance, we could see Jimmy laying in the corner of the den, his head on his left paw and evidently fast asleep. According to agreement, the director went to the corner with his farthest from the sleeping cub and began to call him by name. Jimmy, he shouted, Jimmy, Jimmy, come along, Jimmy, come, come. But the bear never moved. Of course, he must have heard sounds, 
but the voice meant nothing to him. Then the director stepped back, and I began to call. Instantly, Jimmy's head came up from his arm. He scrambled to his feet. Then he came trotting along the inside of the pen, and when he got opposite me, he stood up on his hind legs, and I gave him my hand through the bars. He grabbed it in both his paws and fairly grasped it in, grasped in his excitement. Ooh, ah, oh, ooh! Then he gave way to an odd, continuous babbling sob he often made when greatly stirred. He babbled. He kept it up until I thought I would cry myself. It was very hard to leave him, but of course it had to be. Slowly I took my hand from between his clinging paws and walked away, leaving him sobbing softly to himself. After a year later, I went to see him again. He had grown much larger and was easily holding his own with several other young bears who were occupying the same den with him. When I arrived, some small boys, in defiance of the rules, were throwing peanuts through the bars. All the bears in the den were on the alert for them, but it is safe to say that Jimmy was getting three out of five. I went as near as the guard rail would let me and called him by name. Again he came up, but with a look quite different from the one he had given me a year ago. He stood up on his hind legs and looked at me with a puzzled expression, which seemed to say, It seems to me that I have met you somewhere before, but I'll be hanged if I can remember just where it was or who you are. The last time I saw Jimmy, it was not so long ago. He was still at the zoo. He had outstriped all his companions, both in size and good looks, and was really a superb specimen. As he arose on hind legs, he was tall and straight. His eyes were bright, and his coat was long and healthy. He was the largest and handsomest black bear in the New York Zoologist Park. <laughs>